Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, we're going to be talking about a brilliant book. This book is called The Meaning of Mariah Carey, and it is by none other than Mariah Carey. It is a truly excellent memoir that, quite honestly, should be a movie. It has the perfect arc for an amazing biopic. I have with me Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield, and we're going to do a book club on the greatest book of this and perhaps any year. Uh, (laughs) What were your biggest initial takeaways from this book because there's a lot there i would say just i don't know mariah has such a a way of writing in the character of mariah carey it, it's i mean it's just so extraordinary and even like i haven't listened to the audio book version but I, I saw a lot of the clips go viral and i mean just even like the way that they kind of like jump off when she's reciting them back i mean it's just like it's just so vivid the way that she's able to write in this like the mariah carey diva character that we all know and love so much how about you rob you wrote a great review of it for the site everyone to check out yeah it's uh it's fascinating it's so full of her voice it's this really sustained performance it's really one of the great moments in her career every single page has just the most amazing lines. And uh, we should mention her co-writer, Michaela Angela Davis, who did a great, great job. And I think, quite honestly, to kind of phrase it, it did in fact have me feeling emotions. I thought it was a really moving book, actually. It's one of those uh, celebrity memoirs where you're so rooting for the thing to happen that you, of course, know is going to happen. She so deeply deserves her success on some level in the sense that so much of what happened to her early on was so, so awful. Am I crazy or is this one of the more moving celebrity memoirs I've ever read? Yeah, I, yeah, I think like especially into her childhood and everything, like she definitely did not have an, an easy road to where she got. And then when she got to be Mariah Carey, it was also difficult <laughs> given the circumstances of her marriage and everything else. but. Yeah, it definitely was a long road to kind of her finding any any joy in a lot of it. So, yeah, I, I definitely found it very just like, I don't know, the way, especially thinking in context of like how people have talked about her and kind of, you know, reconsidering a lot of the language around her. It was definitely very touching and moving to to have her relay that. Absolutely. And I think maybe, Rob, you could break down sort of the caricature of Mariah Carey versus the human being we encounter in the book. Sure. I mean, she, uh, I mean, it, it, it's not like she isn't playing that character in this book. It's <laughs> like, it's, it's a very, very in character, very voicey book. That's kind of like what's great about it. I guess what I would say is I saw a difference between this idea of her as this completely out of touch, super loopy diva, which includes even story. I always tell the story of a former manager who told me that she used to hold business meetings at one in the morning after having woken up at midnight is perhaps my my single favorite music story. But Mariah was is someone who who, again, sort of earned the right to be that diva, but also is this just super complex person with a background that kind of, that went deeper in its trauma and sort of trouble than I really had a sense of. I mean, the thing in general about this book is that she was always a figure who was very, basically didn't tell her story. She didn't do, she barely did any interviews. And if she did interviews, she didn't talk about herself. 
or her background. So uh, a lot of things about her uh, that it's not even like she was keeping them a mystery. It's just that, you know, she wasn't talking about them. So the sort of public Mariah Carey that who's been very much in public, but something that set her apart from other superstars, even when she started to blow up in the early 90s, was that uh, she just didn't talk about herself. And if she was presented with an opportunity to just talk about herself, she would just smile and not say anything. That, that became part of her image. Reading this book, I couldn't help but blame the journalist who profiled her to a certain extent for not getting any of this out of her. I mean, it may not have been their fault, but I sort of felt like, well, geez, like where was all this? It complicates what we know about her to such a fascinating extent. But to go through some of what we learned, so her mom was this kind of like flaky bohemian, a white Irish American woman who grew up and and got together with a very non-flaky black guy who was her father. And he was actually quite strict, but Mariah ended up living with her mother and there were a lot, there were basically really straightened financial circumstances. And her mother was not super loving and things never felt particularly safe. Her sister dabbled in prostitution and almost like basically pimped her out when she was practically a preteen. There's all this horrifying, horrifying stuff going on. And Brittany, do you remember the part where, uh, you know, it's later in life and she's going to an acting coach and the acting coach says, do an exercise where you go someplace where you feel safe. And this was among the many parts I found like really moving in the book. She literally could not find a place in her memory that was safe. She had never felt safe. I thought that was remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think to kind of a point that, you know, about like her sort of not revealing and like how we kind of, I know, I think especially with someone like, like Mariah and so many of our most famous female singers, there's so much that even after they kind of get to this point where they, this should be their safety net, this should be kind of like the thing that they can, the fame and the fortune and the things that they're having, like it just continued to, to not create that sort of safety blanket that it should have. And I think that was the part for me, like kind of hearing about a lot of her life as it kind of continued and the Tommy Matola stuff, which, you know, we, we know to an extent with a lot of it, but I think just reading it from her perspective in full and in totality and the relationships after the way that, you know, she kind of, her adult life was only kind of moderately better than a lot of it, that a lot of the way that she grew up, that part also just sort of really, really struck me. You're right. And what it sort of did is help explain for people who don't know, Mariah ended up with uh, Tommy Mottola, who was president of Sony Records. So so it encompassed both. Uh, he was in charge of the Epic Empire as well, not just uh, Columbia. But she ended up with Tommy Mottola. He, she was, and to take a step back, she she had this fairly awful childhood where she, she never felt safe. She also never felt it at home. She faced racism from the white kids. She also didn't feel super accepted by the black community or even even get to know a lot of the black community. So she felt very out of place. But she did, and I was also really struck by this, she was tremendously confident early on in her talent, which was kind of, it's kind of presented as this miraculous thing, which it is. There's that great moment when a, a little girl, one of her friends tells her, when you sing, it's like there's music around it. 
You know, she's six or seven years old. And it does make you think like she's Mariah Carey, like she's walking around and, and, and being a singer like that. I mean, yes, you need training, but it's not like a guitar player or something. You just have that in you to a certain extent. So she would just open her mouth as a little girl and sing like Mariah Carey to, to an extent, which is absolutely wild. Um, but she was spectacularly confident in her talent as a teenager. And she knew when she got to Manhattan at age 18, she she knew not only that, that she wanted a record deal, but that she wanted a record deal with a major label and that she was going to be a major artist. Uh, and there's all these scenes of her, you know, when she was she's auditioning for backup singer gigs. And it wasn't a subtle thing, it sounds like. There's all these, I forget who it was, but one of the singers she's auditioning for is like, oh, are you trying to get my job? Because she was just so good. She was Mariah Carey. Like, yeah. she was really good. So does one of you, one of you want to tell the, the story of how she met uh, Tommy Matoa? All right, I'll tell the story of how she met Tommy Matoa. Uh, so she's at a party, uh, an unsigned artist, and Tommy spots her and, uh, like, you know, somewhat inappropriately fixates on her, asks whoever she is with, who, who's your friend, gets her demo tape, and then, according to legend, which sounds like it's true from the book, literally walks out of the party, goes into a car, listens to the demo tape, comes back up and is like, you know, I want, basically, I want to sign you and marry you and lock you up forever. Uh, and that's like, I, I mean, unfortunately, basically, then it became, as Rob pointed out in his review, it becomes very much a, a sort of Phil Spectory, Ronnie Spector type situation. Brittany, do you want to talk about what you learned about how the, the Tommy Matola Mariah marriage worked because it is pretty creepy. Yeah, I mean, he just was, I mean, the such a controlling, you know, abusive human to her just really gave her no freedom, kind of caged her up in this house. Um, you know, her kind of being just like pushed out on, you know, into the studio and on stage, like just kind of a money making machine for him. Um, who just didn't didn't have a lot of control of her own art, control of her own life, just kind of closed off from everything and locked up by this kind of, you know, awful, abusive industry figure who had a lot of power over her career and could, you know, made it feel like, you know, that was her, op her only option. It's pretty wild. I mean, Rob, this was one aspect that I think we all had a sense of, but what did you learn that was new from the book about this period of her life? Well, she talks a lot about the marriage to Tommy Mottola, her perspective on it is, is you know, it's, it's something that she's implied in song before, but she hasn't, uh, she hasn't talked in great detail about it. What I took away was the fact that, uh, you know, so one of her friends was, was the rapper DeBrat, who sounds really cool in this book, by the way. Uh, she sounds like a lot of fun. And basically they were there to record and Mariah had to execute a James Bond situation to go out and get French fries. They had to sneak away from security. They were being monitored by, uh, you know, there was, everything was wired for sound. She's basically being spied on in the elaborate studio built in, in this mansion that they, that they had together. And she, she and Debrat left. Jermaine Dupri was there as well. They snuck out, drove to Burger King and got fries and literally, Tommy Mottola sent security after them and basically like pulled guns on Jermaine Dupri and was like, where's Mariah? I guess I only had a vague idea of how bad it was. I mean, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was so bad that she couldn't go out and get French fries. It was insane. Like, Brittany, did you know it was, it was that bad? 
I feel like I had never read, I mean, obviously, as Rob said, like, there was a lot of implied in the songs, things like that. And I don't think I'd, I had ever read something from her where she had detailed it so much. I think I just read a lot of rumors. I, I didn't realize, like, how... For some reason, I just never knew the connection between Tommy, Mariah, and the J-Lo situation. And kind of that that was the prompt for it. Like, I, you know, she obviously doesn't name J-Lo because she doesn't know her. But, like, that kind of, <laughs> that connection of him, like, taking, you know, the sample that she was going to use and how that was used against her um, after they had split. But, yeah, I, it was a lot of stuff that, you know, rumors that I had read, things like that about him being just, like, terrible and obviously any much much older man to that extent with his like teenage pop star bride it's always going to be you know that's pretty suspicious but yeah <laughs> slightly suspect yeah uh, when, when the when the uh, globally powerful head of a, of a multinational record company kidnaps a, a, a yeah. teenage pop star and locks her away and doesn't let her go out and get french fries it, it, it seems pretty messed up mm-hmm. I like how they go to the, a therapist who's basically like I was like this is weird. You should stop. You should consider not yeah. locking her in the house. And he's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. It was, it's a very strange, yeah. it, it, it's all very strange. And, and it's, a, I mean, the other aspect that I kind of knew about, but it was enlightening to read about it in her voice was her musical evolution. She started out in this obviously adult contemporary vein uh, with Tommy trying to basically like, erase any hint of blackness from from her music uh and she and this is part of why i think it would really make a great movie she always had such a great sense of what she could be doing and part of as much as she was escaping physically she was simultaneously escaping musically um i love that what, what was your takeaway on, on that part rob if you, if you have it well her um her perspective on the early part of her career and her rise from fame and and her uh, her musical evolution through the nineties, like the rest of the book, it's very it's 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 very voicey. It's sort of a, a counter narrative. It's it's very very different from how the evolution of her career played out in in the public sphere in the nineties. Uh, so, That's really interesting. Actually, can you can you elaborate on that a bit? Well, that she, um, for instance, that the really moving part where she talks about how she she made a grunge album secretly in 1995 because she Britney's hated her own records. I think, yes. And, and yes, and, and because, you know, she said everything I did was so manicured and and calculated and boring. And, and she said this pretending, you know, uh, pretending to be Alanis Morissette on this record was very, very liberating for her. And it's it's sort of uh, an example of the kind of thing that she uh, she wasn't doing in her own music at the time. I do remember, because it really stuck with me, a 90s Rolling Stone profile that hinted that, at that because Mariah revealed she loved listening to Hole and singing along with Courtney Love. Brittany, am I correct that that was basically your favorite part of the book, that, that revelation? I loved it, yeah. Um, I just, I mean, it's just so, I think it's a great testament to even like going, like, you know, the songs that I think a lot of them were taken off of YouTube. Some of them were on YouTube when she had released that excerpt and like, you know, right before the book came out, but even listening to them, I just, I think that one of the things that I have always loved about Mariah Carey and that I think like gets so underappreciated in the conversations about her, is just like how much of a brilliant songwriter she is and just like how she just makes it look so easy. Like she has written hit after hit after hit and it just like makes it look so like 
incredibly natural and easy for the entirety of her career. And I mean, just the fact that she was able to, like her engineer told me that she was just able to write these songs like 10 minutes. And it was after being in the studio for 16 hours, like recording. And all of a sudden she would just be like, okay, like I'm going to go record this other album now and write songs in a different character and be someone else. Um, And I love that was the early part of the Bianca character from the Heartbreaker video that she described that the Chick album as like the beginning of this character's metamorphosis that we would see in the Heartbreaker video very famously. Yeah, you do get a sense of her as a songwriter and or a reminder of her as a songwriter, especially when she kind of brilliantly interlaces the uh, the real life incidents that inspired songs against the lyrics to songs. And then you, you realize that she was much more of a, a 70s style confessional singer songwriter than you than you might have ever guessed. It's weird. She talks about uh, Carly that her mom loved Carly Simon. And it's like, wow, there's a little bit of that in her. Like she's she was all this stuff was was hyper autobiographical. It's, it's also hilarious and dark how she would write these kind of like lusty love songs after leaving Tommy and and Tommy was she would have to play them for him as her as her record executive and he'd be like I'm glad you were so inspired uh it's it's dark it's so weird the other part that I thought would be great in the movie and I can name like 20 parts that I think would be great in the Mariah biopic is when she I had no idea this ever happened she in a totally badass move gets on a plane and flies to Japan and talks to Tommy Mottola's boss at Sony, tells this uh, Japanese executive what went down. is so fantastic. This super formal Sony exec being basically told about the messed up shit that this dude is doing in America by this superstar who was so big that at this point she was super famous in Japan. So of course he took the meeting. I thought that was wild. Had, had either of you ever heard that, that anecdote before? I've never, not only have I never heard that anecdote, I've never heard anything like it of an artist going, you know? No, I love that. I just, yeah, there's so much of, I mean, even with this book is like another element of Mariah blossoming into, you know, another kind of greater version of herself. And there is so much of that in that book, in the book where you're kind of, you know, having her retell her own kind of coming of age that was so, you know, in some ways delayed for a lot of it and the way that she was able to kind of reclaim a lot of herself over the years. But what I loved about the book's just existence and by the end of it, you're just kind of seeing her really reclaim so much of the power of her legacy and the power of, you know, moments like those where she was kind of taking charge of a lot of her life and finding herself in those ways. But yeah, I, I, I love the, I love that scene. The whole J-Lo situation, maybe one of you can break down, since she she's pretty elliptical about it because she doesn't know her, uh, <laughs> may, maybe one of you could uh, explain to those who truly don't know, who truly do not know what, what we're talking about. <laughs> there was like a, a sample that she was going to use on a song for, what was it, Dream Lover she was going to use the sample on? And Tommy Mottola... Lover Boy. Lover Boy. That's it. Yeah. She's going to use on Lover Boy for glitter. And Tommy gave the sample to J-Lo to use for something else. And I forget which song that I don't think. I'm yeah. real. Yeah. And, and she, the she, chapter she ends, I'm real, bitch. Like, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's very funny. The, the, the long running feed with, with J-Lo. I mean, one of the fascinating things about the book is, is she keeps presenting this career, which has been unbroken success in the public eye. That for her, it's it's trials and tribulations with her record company holding her back 
that that the evil empire of Sony has been an obstacle all the way, which is of course very different from how uh, anybody else in the world has seen it over the past thirty years. And so this is like a fun example that she has spies within Sony who are feeding Mariah's potential samples to to her most hated rival, who she doesn't know. Who she will never know, <laughs> ever. We're talking about Mariah Carey and her fantastic book, The Meaning of Mariah Carey. So maybe we should talk about what has been known from the outside as her breakdown. She admirably refuses to call it that. I took her at face value, I think a little bit more than you did, Rob, in this book. I think I was, I think I accepted her as a reliable narrator, perhaps a bit too much. I was very drawn in by the book. Kind of when she says it wasn't a breakdown, when she says the TRL thing was on purpose, I'm just like, I believe you, Mariah. But I do think that, as the dude would say, I think new shit has come to light in this book about the breakdown situation. And, you know, and she makes a lot of good points. Maybe we can start by detailing how it seemed from the outside. Uh, and I was, I, I think, still working at MTV at the time. And, and people were, were very, very uh, worked up about it at the time. And, and yes, as she describes, excited in a jackal-like way, I think is actually not wrong. I think, that she, I think she's dead on. Does one of you want to explain how the situation looked to the outside world before we get to what she reveals in the book? Yeah, I mean, I I just sort of remember the coverage of it just in in light of like glitter not doing very well and everything. Like this was like the first kind of big flop in in Stan language era for for Mariah. And I, I just remember the coverage just being like Mariah is going crazy. Like just kind of the language around it was just like super insensitive and kind of treating her like this, you know. I don't know, like it was just kind of like taking very, taking very lightly what was much more serious mental health issues and everything else going on. But yeah, I think just like, you know, the TRL ice cream situation with like a little like ice cream cart, you know, stuff like that. Like I just remember a lot of the coverage being so kind of like flippant in the way that especially in the early to mid 2000s more than ever, kind of the way that women in celebrity culture were, were always sort of covered in a way where if some if they did something that was very you know seeming to be atypical or kind of like off script or off brand just being treated like you know it was the the funniest and weirdest thing they can ever do and like laughing at mariah carey like she became very much the butt of the joke i'm going to read a story from mtvnews.com from august 1st 2001 and if you're wondering who was covering Mariah Carey's situation at that time for MTVNews.com, the answer appears to be me. Uh, so let's read what <laughs> I wrote on, on August 1st, 2001. And, and thank God it's pretty straight. The, quote, extreme exhaustion that led to Mariah Carey's hospitalization last week was actually, quote, an emotional and physical breakdown, her publicist said Wednesday, August 1st. 2001. Carrie was in the midst of promoting her new album Glitter in the movie of the same name when she checked herself into a hospital last Wednesday night. She is undergoing psychiatric care, publicist Cindy Berger said. A press release sent out last week by Berger's company, PMK, suggested that the pace of filming two movies and making an album caused Carrie to become exhausted. Before her breakdown, Carrie broke some glasses and dishes in a hotel room and, quote, may have cut her foot, close quote, unintentionally, according to Berger. 
She declined to speculate on when Carrie might be released. In a despondent voice message left on her official website before she checked into the hospital, Carrie said, I'm trying to understand things in life right now, and so I really don't feel I should be doing music right now. Glitter is due in stores August 21st. While the movie is scheduled for an August 31st release, Carrie has canceled all public appearances, including a planned headlining performance Wednesday night at MTV's MTV 20, live and almost legal. While juggling a video shoot, a recording session, and a whirlwind publicity schedule in May, Carrie told MTV News that the nonstop pace was getting to her. I'm honestly really, really delirious and stressed out and overworked and doing too much. I haven't slept in like two weeks, and that's an important detail for you to know. It's an insane time in my life. It's crazy. Everything is going on like really fast. So, I mean, wow. Some of this matches up with the book. What's weird is is her own publicist kind of putting out that she was undergoing psychiatric care when... So it's it's wild, but but what we learn from the book or her version in the book is basically like she could not sleep and she had a lifelong issue with sleep. But in this case, she was just overworked. And every time she would check into a hotel and they would like track her down, knock on the door and make her work. Right. Basically. And then she hid out and then she tried hiding at a friend's house to sleep and then she couldn't. And then she uh, and then basically the inciting incident that led to the world thinking that she had a full breakdown is kind of incredible. And again, not to be a broken record, but this is big scene in the movie. Uh, she goes to her, her mom's house and her mom is not a sympathetic figure. Uh, Mariah falls asleep. Her mom, her own mom wakes her up and is like, everyone's looking for you. You need to go to work basically. And then Mariah by her account and powerful scene in the movie after years of internalizing all her pain and anger over her childhood, lets it out in the, her first burst of anger. She's finally able to access her anger. And she starts screaming at her mother, using her own words against her, uh, you know, basically like, uh, like, I did my best, I did my best, which is, I guess, what her mother would say whenever confronted with any criticism of her parenting. And her mother, like, actually calls the cops on her daughter, Mariah Carey. And Mariah puts it in terms of like basically uh, whiteness and white privilege. Like she knew that if anything ever went wrong, you just call the cops. And Mariah allows herself to be taken out of this house that she paid for by the cops and asked to be, be taken to like basically like a what she what turns out to be basically a psychiatric hospital. It's wild to me because it what it does for me is it connects what we know as the breakdown to what we learn about her background it's it, that's why it's like it's almost too cinematic that it's all that it turns out that that was her past catching up with her is just absolutely wild to me so i guess what i'd ask you to after that incredible monologue is just like how how do you connect that to what we knew about this breakdown and, and, and what do you believe and, and what do you think of it? Because I, I thought it was, you know, it's all kind of extraordinary. Well, it's very different from the public account at the time. Part of why this incident attracted so much attention at the time is that Mariah Carey had always been a very, very stick to the script kind of celebrity. She was very disciplined uh, and uh, extraordinarily productive, extraordinarily prolific. So this was really the, the first time in her public life where sh she seemed to be unscripted and unfiltered and spontaneous. It was kind of like, you know, as, as she was talking about when she made her 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 whole album in 1995, where she said every move I made was so manicured and calculated. And this was a case where she was really, for the first time in the public eye, really uh, unfiltered. 
very different from the Mariah Carey the world had known up to that point. And of course, Glitter was coming out, uh, which, as, as Britney said, was the first thing that she was ever involved with that wasn't a, a massive, simple success. Yeah, well, she, she describes basically that Glitter was a, a shadow, even in its greatness, was a shadow of what it could have been had Tommy Mottola not apparently, like, the hand of Tommy Mottola apparently, like, sabotaged it Every time it was going to get gritty and real, that was wild. Tommy's Tommy's hand reached everywhere. But I guess I'll say that I recently read, because I had to talk to him, uh, the Matthew McConaughey memoir. And what you take away from the Matthew McConaughey memoir, which is also very entertaining, is that everything you think about Matthew McConaughey is exactly as you think it is. Like, you're, it's all exact. Like, every anecdote, you're like, well, that was pretty much, we had that right. Like, the, the, na- the naked bongos thing is literally the exact story that you thought, you're, you're probably like, well, he must have been up for 24 hours and, like, high and just, like, having a great time and that was just the kind of guy he is. And it's like, it's like, yes, that is what happened. Like, it's like, but this this is this is different because this is someone, you know, and, and maybe it's an issue of him being a, a white dude. Mariah is someone who was slighted a lot in the way that, that people perceived her. And, yeah, did make a joke of this dark place she went to. What did you make of that, Brittany, and, her, and especially her attempts to kind of seize the narrative both within the breakdown and basically the entire story of her career, which is what this book is about? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're seeing so much of that from Mariah lately, where I think that she kind of has both confronted and accepted parts of her past that I, I think that she always shied away from, even in the way that she's talked about glitter she avoided for so long and i think now kind of you know even with it not being the way it could have been like she does celebrate a lot of the parts of it that are great and you know it does seem like she has this ability now to kind of look at the entirety of her career and you know she's always had this you know incredible confidence about her abilities as a singer and a songwriter but also just like wanting to be accepted as the legacy that she is and as the, you know, more than just kind of the the person who is competing against everyone else and kind of is the number one hit maker. Like, I think she wants to have that part of her, the things that she really broke ground on and have that sort of be celebrated and be recognized as like, that she did many amazing things in her career, but she's also the sum of all those parts of all the things that were the failures and the sadder moments and I think that's just kind of what's been so beautiful about this book coming at the time that it has come in Mariah Carey's life and career over the last few years, where you are seeing more of that and seeing her have a a really good sense of humor about the things that were a little like more kind of, you know, the the lower points and the moments that, you know, aren't as kind of like the, the peak Mariah Carey that we see, like she is sort of letting herself be seen in from all different angles, not just her best angle. (laughs) <laughs> well said. <laughs> I was struck by the revelation that even her Christmas thing has sort of a, like a dark origin, that she became obsessed with. What did, what did you make of that part, Brittany? Do you remember that part? I don't remember what the origin of it was. Well, it's it's basically like, you know, it's, it's just like she like disappeared into this. this she never had like this happy Christmas. She had oh, this yeah. dream of she, I mean, that's why, that's why it's kind of amazing. That's why it's cinematic. It's so wildly cinematic. It's like everything has this like perfect 
Where Comic is your adaptation, Brian? Yeah, I know. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Brian, I, why aren't you writing your I'm, Citizen I'm, Kane I'm, remake I'm, starring I'm, Brian Carey right I'm, now? I'm, I don't think I can Rosebud. afford... Rosebud. I got to tell you... I gotta tell you, I do not think I can afford the life rights to Mariah Carey, personally, but... I mean, you just gotta maybe, send, it, send in the script are, and see what happens. <laughs> I, I, I thinly get, veiled. Do, thinly do, veiled. Do, yeah. Do you two doubt that there will be a biopic? Of course there will. Come on. Of course there will. Eventually. She's definitely eventually. gonna Madonna it, and she's gonna co-write it. Like she's gonna, Right, right. Yeah. She, she may play herself. <laughs> yeah. She may play herself at age I mean, she does have directing you know? credits. She directed that amazing Lifetime holiday movie or homework, some type of, you know, Christmas movie that she directed a few years ago. So, so she's she's there. Madonna is co-writing her biopic with Diablo Cody, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And is also going to direct it? I think so. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That is, by the way, that is the move of the future, and I, I think that that should be encouraged. And I want to see, I want to see more of that. I, I do wish that Madonna would also just flat out say, "I'm starring in it. I'm going to CGI myself back to like even age five. Like I'm going to, I'm going to play myself at all ages and just star in it." And that's that. I think, I think that could be a thing. I think we could be looking at that. Both Mariah and Madonna, better actresses than people want to admit. So I would, I would let both of them play themselves. Yes, and great at playing themselves. Glitter is her desperately seeking Susan in yeah. so many ways. It's really weird in the book that she has nothing good to say about either the Glitter movie or the Glitter album. Uh, it was really fun a couple years ago when Glitter returned to the top of the charts in kind of a vindicating moment for those of us who've loved Glitter over the years. It's It's really a fantastic record that... It was really her most unfiltered record up to that point that gave a real sense into the personality that comes across so so vividly in this book. That parts of this book she's talking about being a, a, a little kid and just being so fascinated by music, that comes across a lot in, in Glitter, in, in both the soundtrack and the movie. The book did send me back to a bunch of Mariah music. There's a song that turns out to be, at least I didn't know it was about Derek Jeter, called The Roof, Back in Time. And that's such a great song. And it's so amazing to know that it was written about this word for word about this incident with Derek Jeter on a rooftop. But it's definitely the best song written about uh, Derek Jeter that I, I've ever heard. A few things. And then knowing how hard she studied backup vocals on records was really interesting to me. And you can really hear that on her music. It's actually something that Michael Jackson was also really good at. He did all his own backing vocals and he was a master backing vocalist to himself. And that's something that Mariah did a lot of. It was incredible. And there was a great moment when her, her, she's so pleased. Her dad says, you sound like all three pointer sisters. And that's the highest compliment to her because it shows that her dad was listening to her backing vocal uh, abilities. Um, Rob, you mentioned in your review, this sort of Mariah Whitney axis. How do you kind of see that rivalry? Well, it was a rivalry that, you know, engaged fans. It was a super fun rivalry that, that anybody who's a fan of pop music in the 90s was deeply engaged and deeply invested in. It's kind of amazing because, uh, you know, when Mariah came out, it, it was kind of perfect timing because Whitney was off her game. You know, when Mariah made her first record, her debut, 
Uh, it was just really a brilliant kind of record, the kind that, that Whitney wasn't making at the time. To paraphrase Omar on the wire, when you come for the queen, you'd best not miss. And Mariah came with like all her stuff, her debut album. It was not just a lot of 1990s biggest hit singles on one record, but it was an artistic statement that people could get excited about. And Whitney, at that point, she just made her most recent album that year was I'll Be Your Baby Tonight, which is unquestionably the worst album she made in her lifetime. Maybe the the weakest record counting the posthumous ones. But uh, it was perfectly poised for Mariah to sort of uh, take over. And the sort of back and forth that they had over the next decade was just uh, just fascinating, but a great example, almost like with the Beatles and the Stones, where you have two huge artists who are uh, influencing each other and inspiring each other and kind of competing with each other in really creative ways. You write in your review, without Mariah, there would be no bodyguard, no I will, will always love you, no heartbreak hotel. It, it, you, you seem to, uh, you argue that basically like uh, that the coming of Mariah kind of kicked Whitney in the ass, it sounds like. Yeah, pretty much. You know, while the queen was looking down, the princess stole her thorny crown. And suddenly, like, I mean, part of the thing with like Whitney before, you know, in the, in the year before Mariah came along, uh, Whitney was starting to sound bored. And it's not just that the songs were boring, but it sounded like Whitney was feeling at ah, this song isn't great. But what does it matter? I don't have any competition. I am the voice in show business. And then when Mariah came out with her first record and then Emotions obviously scared Whitney into action. So with I Will Always Love You came out, everybody was shocked because it was like, oh, this is what it sounds like when Whitney's actually trying. This is what it sounds like when she's, you know, lip syncing for her life. And it was a beautiful kind of thing to see uh, an, an older, more established artist sort of rise to the challenge from uh, from the newcomer. And that back and forth that they had was super inspiring and super exciting. And they both loved Aretha and they both they both love to compete with which one Aretha loved more. Oh God, and I'm glad you mentioned that because another thing, and you know, maybe I was just in a, an emotionally weak state because I've been up late uh, working on a story all week, but another thing I found weirdly moving is just her encounters with some of the legends. And I just love that when she first met Aretha Franklin, she literally like knelt down next to her and was just like, Ms. Franklin, thank you. And then Aretha, for one, Aretha, who really legit hated most young singers, let's face it. I mean, if you've ever heard her talk about, you know, I mean, she she truly despised <laughs> most, uh, I would say most other singers, possibly most other people. I don't know. I mean, she was, you know, but but like. By, by literally kneeling before her and by calling her Ms. Franklin and thanking her, you know, she seemed to have really touched Aretha. Aretha, or, or should I say Ms. Franklin, uh, Aretha, you know, said, you know, the thing about you, Mariah, is you had manners. None of these other girls have any manners. And it's just, I was like, I was like, oh, that's so, so amazing. Uh, and I think it says, it speaks really well of Mariah that for all the diva stuff, like she knew how to, maybe because she knows how she would like to be treated, but I, I just thought that was really sweet, that moment between her and, and Aretha. And also that yeah. she knew at the, whatever the VH1 Divas thing, that don't try to compete with Aretha. She just had, she had this instinctual, just kind of Aretha whisperer thing of how to deal with Aretha Franklin. I, I thought that, I just thought that was, that was cool. Yeah, and so many of her heroes just like, consider her to be up there with them. You know, it's funny, like, 
even seen at the Patti LaBelle Gladys Knight verses that they had. Like they talked about Mariah so much. Like they were talking about just like how great she is and like how she should like be there with them. Like it's incredible like how many of her of her heroes kind of and and so rare to kind of see that from, you know, artists where it's like they're talking about this this person who clearly studied them, who clearly loved them, who clearly has like modeled so much of what she does after them, uh, you know, at the same level they are, at the same, you know, revering her just as much, um, which is so beautiful. Absolutely. So that is today's episode. We were talking about Mariah Carey's great book, The Meaning of Mariah Carey. We were going to talk about possibly the great Jessica Simpson book from this year, but we didn't even get to it because there was so much great Mariah Carey stuff. Maybe we'll get to Jessica in in some kind of year-end wrap-up because uh, you got to check out that book. It's amazing. And not just for the John Mayer dirt. Anyway, we'll be back. The Nick Lachey dirt. Oh, my God. Nick Lachey is Her Tommy Um, Mottola. True. So that is this week's Rolling Stone Music Now. Thanks to Rob Sheffield and Brittany Spanos. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. That is always appreciated. As always, thanks for listening. Stay safe out there, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.